and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, Exodus chapter 30 tonight, and maybe you've gotten there already, maybe you're just now turning there, but let me start with a question. What are some of the things we call the first five books of the Bible? The Pentateuch, okay. Pentateuch means kind of five-fold scroll, so Pentagon, five-sided building, right? Pentateuch, five-fold scroll. What else? The Torah, the Law of Moses and the Torah. And what does Torah mean? Torah is Hebrew for what? Law, yeah. <laughs> so the law of Moses, the Torah, uh, which is pretty cool there. And so we are now over 10 chapters into the law part of the law. <laughs> so it's called the Torah, which means law. And even though it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, it took us a while to get to where there were actually laws, but we're about 10 or 11 chapters deep now in just one law after another related to very specific things. So all of Genesis was background material we needed to understand uh, to understand where we are. Genesis 1 through 11 had 2,000 years of earth history before the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, so uh, I like how Jimmy DeYoung says it. The first 2,000 years there was just Gentiles. Then for the next 2,000 years, there were Gentiles and Jews, as Abraham was called out. And now for these last 2,000 years, there's been a third entity, the church, that's made up of Gentiles and Jews who have turned to Christ, right? Uh, so the first 2,000 years is in Genesis 1 through 11, um, creation, fall, judgment, covering. You get the very first prophecy of Christ coming in chapter 3. You get the flood, the Tower of Babel, God's serious about judging sin when we don't repent. Then Genesis 12 through 50 began Israel's history with the all-important Abrahamic covenant. What were the three main promises of the Abrahamic covenant? Give me one of them. Yeah, the promised land. They call it the promised land for a reason. It was promised to Abraham and his descendants right there. What else? Greatness, right? That uh, Abraham's uh, descendants would be a great nation. And even things as mundane as the fact that a disproportionate number of Nobel Peace Prize winners come from the Jewish people. Just a remarkable people throughout history and all that they've had to endure and overcome. And, uh, and then the third one, that the entire earth would be blessed through Abraham's seed. And as it goes along, that's a promise of uh, the Messiah. Um, we would never be uh, so cavalier to use the word sperm instead of seed, but that's basically how the Hebrew does it, right? And so it's even more explicit when you know the Hebrew there or look at the Hebrew there about what he's saying. Uh, in fact, uh, it's kind of the same with Genesis 3, the promise, the seed of the woman. It's like, well, wait a second, a woman doesn't have seed, yes, but uh, Mary the virgin get, did get to bear the holy seed, right? Uh, so pretty interesting how that itself is a, a promise of Christ. Um, 
you get the uh, origins of the 12 tribes of Israel are seen also in Genesis 12 through 50, including Joseph and Judah, the tribes that will kind of overshadow the others. Several more prophecies of Christ emerge, such as he will come from Judah. So at the end of Genesis, they're down in Egypt, and Exodus opens with them being slaves in Egypt needing to be delivered. Genesis 15 had promised that after 400 years, that's what would happen, and that's what did when Moses the Deliverer was raised up. So Exodus also has two parts. The first part where Moses is raised up to deliver them out of Egyptian bondage. Uh, exit us. <laughs> Exodus, right? Um, they got to exit uh, Egypt on their way to the Promised Land. And um, somebody said the first uh, half of Exodus is getting Israel out of Egypt. And then when God gives the law, the second half is getting Egypt out of Israel, the Israelites, right, as they serve the Lord instead. Uh, what big event uh, also came uh, out because of the Exodus? What ceremony that uh, is key to Israel's history and as a type of Christ? The Passover, the Passover that's uh, in, the, um, in, in there that is celebrated with the blood over the door itself. It's a type of Christ's coming sacrifice. So in Exodus chapter 19, Israel got to Mount Sinai where they will pretty much stay until the book of Numbers begins. So time's kind of stopped on us. There is a little bit of narrative, but for the most part, it's getting these instructions and uh, getting ready to move, and then Numbers uh, documents uh, that uh, as it gets going. In chapter 20, the laws of Israel begin, or began, now that we're looking back on it. Chapter 20 began with the Ten Commandments, the foundation of God's great moral law. Then there were three more chapters giving some of the civil laws based on that moral law. And civil laws are how the, law, the moral law breaks down for Israel, some specific things they were to do. Not all of that is applicable to us in a timeless way. Some of that is just under that old covenant for Israel. Uh, but the moral law itself is timeless. You know, so what God says about uh, adultery and what God says about theft and what God says about uh, lying, timelessly true. All Christians are under those as well. Um, in chapter 24, the people accepted God's terms of that Mosaic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, right? And it was made with Abraham and his Israelite descendants. Unconditional means uh, no conditions, right? God's going to do this. He's going to do this for this people. Now, every generation has to get in on it through faith, you know. Um, so just as Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness, he's looking for people to turn to him in faith. The Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant made with Israelites. Moses is going to be very clear on this when in Deuteronomy he gives three big sermons to them before he dies. You're going to get blessings for obedience, Israel. You're going to get curses for disobedience. And that's not so different than us, you know, I mean... Uh, God is the ultimate promise keeper, so when a sinner turns to Him and is born again, God's not an Indian giver. I don't know why we pick on the Indians by saying Indian giver, you know. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the say, say, saying is, you know, God's not an Indian giver. It's impossible to have eternal life and then not have it, right? You either have it or you don't. Uh, but if you want to be blessed in this life, you're going to want to do what God says, the same as Israel needed to do for blessings. So. Later we learn that one of the purposes of the moral law was to show our need of God's forgiveness because of the way we fall short of the glory of God. I don't think there's probably anybody in this room that got a 100% grade on every test you ever took. Is there anybody in here? You got a 100 on everything you ever took. You were perfect. 
No, not me neither, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, you fell short, didn't you? There was imperfection. There was a falling short. And part of the moral law is to say this is what God expects of a holy, perfect people. And one way or multiple ways, we all fall short of that. And it shows our need of a Savior. Um, and even in their day, God knew that the Israelites would fall short and sin and need a way for their sin to be forgiven. There's your next fill in the blank. So in chapter 25, instructions for the tabernacle were given through the end of Exodus. And that's the part we're in now, uh, this uh, chapter uh, 30. But it's interesting, I put in your notes there the verse 2 Chronicles 6.36. This is around the time that Solomon dedicated the temple. And I'm just giving you this phrase that's in that verse. Uh, he said, when they sin against you, and then Solomon said, hey, for who is there who doesn't sin, right? For who is there who doesn't sin? So he's counting on the fact that even though any one of them as individuals and as families didn't want to sin, that we wind up sinning. We wind up uh, falling short of the glory of God. And so uh, Solomon, like Moses, was anticipating the need to have your sin forgiven. And thank God in the Old Testament economy, there was this tabernacle to help them uh, get that done. A place they could come, confess their sins, come to God for forgiveness. He would forgive them. A place where they could pull together the people and instruct them in what God expected. And it's pretty neat. So today we finish up the basic instructions for that tabernacle. Exodus chapter 30, let me read it. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of a cake of wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be one piece with it and you shall overlay its top, its sides all around and its horns with pure gold and you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it, under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of a cake you would, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it before the veil that's before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that's over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Okay, so before I read the next verse, I've given you a map. Uh, so I, you've got each of the instruments for the tabernacle up till now, including these last two we're adding in, described by numbers. And then there's a map that shows the tabernacle. And you'll notice this altar of incense is right before he would go into the Holy of Holies uh, as you look at it there. Okay, so you might want to go back and forth with your eyes uh, with that and also the bronze laver when we get that to see approximately where they are. It is interesting to me, and one of the things I pondered as I got this study ready for tonight, why he didn't talk about this when he talked about the other things that were already inside the tent. Or why he didn't talk about the bronze laver at the same time as talking about the thing that's outside the tent, where you 
bring the offering, the altar for burnt offering. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 11, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among you when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. Um, when you, this is, that verse is taken out of some politicians' Bibles. Um, but uh, when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now here's the bronze laver. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, for Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to Yahweh, they shall wash with water, lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. Now, when we come back and study it, we'll note something is not part of that item description that was part of the other descriptions. See if you can figure that out before we get there. Verse 22, Moreover, Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh. Whoo, that's a lot of myrrh right there. We'll talk about it. Half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compound, compound according to the art of the perfumer. Let me read that again and do it right. You shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base. Pretty much anything you made with gold, silver, or bronze. <laughs> You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall say to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing all to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you." Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. Hmm. And the Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacti and ancha and galbanum, and pure frankincense with these sweet spices. There shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these an incense, a compound, according to the art of the perfumer. So that's twice that phrase has occurred. Salted, pure, and holy. And you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. Exodus chapter 30. 
You know, it's interesting to me as we've been through this section starting in chapter 25 where the different instruments that were going to be part of this tabernacle were called for that would later be in the temple. It's interesting to me the way God gives it to Moses and lays it out. Uh, you know, in different parts of Scripture, you got to get your mind around different kinds of things. So when you get into the Psalms, you got to be thinking about poetry and songs all of a sudden, right? And some of those Hebrew poetic devices. Uh, there's acrostics. There's all kinds of neat things about them. You know, there's uh, different kinds. And so now that we're in, basically we're looking at building instructions. You know, I don't know much about building other than playing with Legos and stuff. Mostly I watched my kids and others play with them because they're just not very handy. Uh, I'm not the good Danny, as uh, Gary would say there. Y'all know about that? We was up on that mission trip in there in Canada. And I was just basically a gopher, right? Bring this to the guys and let them do the work and smile and grin and wait for the uh, preachery things to do and stuff. And uh, Gary, from the top of the roof, in a moment of desperation, said, I need Danny. And I said, here I am. And he said, no, the good Danny, because there was an Indian Danny up there that was very handy on the roof and stuff. And we, you know, my job was just to get the good Danny and get out of the way. Um, but... Uh, you know, um, per, uh, I, think, I think as I look at this, one of the questions that was in my mind is, how come you would present one thing that's inside the room, but not all that's in the room, and one thing that's in the courtyard, but not all that's in the courtyard? I thought you'd cover it section by section, right? And that just made sense to me. So one of the things I was trying to do was wrap my, round, my mind around why it's presented in the order it is. And, and can I make heads or tails of that? I don't need to because it's God and God's Word, you know. I just you, kind of things you think about to try to process. Is there more understanding there that I don't, I don't get? Well, I think there might be because what does he cover first in chapter 25? What's the very first thing that he talks about making? The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. And there's no doubt when you look at this whole tabernacle setup, the most important thing is that ark with its mercy seat where the glory of the Lord is going to fall and it's going to represent them meeting with God, right, and getting their uh, corporate sins forgiven. I mean, that, that, so, so that's what it was about. And then he talked about the table for the bread and the golden lampstand, right? And immediately Christians think about the importance of Christ as the bread of life and that He is the light of the world, you know. So those key things where they're going to put out the showbread and also they're going to have uh, the light to be able to minister inside that tent, that to me uh, was evidently very, very important. And that comes uh, next in chapter 25. Uh, he leaves the altar of incense representing the priest's intercession. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But he leaves that for chapter 30. So that's inside the tent, but it's left for chapter 30. In chapter 26, he went over the tabernacle stuff, uh, how to make the, the, the tabernacle and the holy of holy place, holy of holies, and the veil that separated them. And so you've got the thing under tent by that point, or at least the instructions are there. Because we're going to look again in Exodus, and we're going to come to where, and we'll go through it fairly quickly, but where they take these five chapters, and they show them just obeying it, you know, and going out. So we've got five whole chapters to come that in a way we've really already covered, you know. So we won't uh, take a week on every one of those, I don't think. But um, in chapter 27, he went over the altar for the burnt offering, um, and the court tent or fence that's going to surround the courtyard there. He leaves the bronze laver, the priest, so we got the priest again, that they'll wash themselves at 
he leaves that for chapter 30 after he's talked about the priests and the offerings they will bring. So what does he do in chapter 28? He talks about the clothing for the priests and the specific offerings they're going to bring for sinners. And in chapter 29, he talked about ordaining those priests and the offerings they will bring. And if you look at it that way, it makes sense that God would leave the altar of incense and the bronze laver for he, after he had talked about the other priestly things. So uh, that's, that's what I was thinking as I looked at it. Any other thoughts pop into your mind before we look at these uh, section by section? Okay. In the first ten verses, you get the instructions for the altar of incense. And it is one and a half feet long, one and a half feet wide. It's a square. It's three feet high. It's overlaid with pure gold, including the rings and the poles to help carry it. So this is the last major item before the veil that the high priest would go through on his way into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And Aaron, or whoever the high priest was in the future, was going to have to burn on that altar sweet incense every morning and every night, every twilight, perpetually throughout your generations. And that phrase, throughout your generations, occurs 20 times in the Old Testament. All of it is in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, things that they wanted to perpetually happen at this tabernacle, later the temple, done by the priests. Uh, and here we read that one thing of these is perpetually to happen is in the morning light it, in the evening light it, so there's perpetually incense rising, right? And incense has that sweet fragrance, right, as it goes up. Um, throughout the Bible, it doesn't just represent incense rising. Uh, what does incense rising represent to God related to His people? Intercessory prayer, right? Intercessory prayer. Now, obviously, a human high priest failed at perpetual prayer. He'd light it in the morning, he'd light it in the evening, so it kept going. But Aaron wasn't lighting that and praying for the people and then going back to his cot and praying all day, right? I mean, Aaron probably flipped to Fox News for a while. He probably flipped to, flipped to ESPN for a while, right? He heard reports uh, and different things like that. He, he, he uh, spent time with his wife and kiddos and those type things. So he wasn't perpetually praying, but this was to represent intercession perpetually. One of my favorite verses, you've heard me quote it before, is Hebrews 7.25, where it talks about Jesus. It says, Therefore he's also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. So whenever you talk to, uh, to Jesus about people and you're talking about um, you know, uh, his, uh, you know, you're going through the whole thing with them, right? Uh, like the song says, living, he loved me, dying, he saved me, you know, that whole thing, right? So you're talking about how his perfect life was important because it uh, made him able to be a sacrifice for us imperfect people. He had to live a perfect life. Where Adam blew it, he had to get it right, and he did with the temptations with Satan. Where Israel blew it, he had to get it right, and he did. Every point along the way where they failed, he obeyed. All of humanity, that's true. We failed, he did not. So his perfect life is important. The fact that he was virgin-born fits into that as well, doesn't it? You know, that he, was, he, he didn't have a sin nature, 
So no sin nature, no sin choices. He's perfect. Uh, and, and the virgin birth and his perfect life made that possible. Um, we talk about his teachings and what all that meant. We talk about his miracles and how that fulfilled prophecies and showed him to be the Messiah. We talk about his death, his sacrificial death for sinners. We talk about his rising. And then we usually talk about his ascension. And then what's the next thing we say? And one day, he's coming back in two stages. Going to rapture the church and then later return to earth and set up his rule. What do we always leave out but the scripture describes as just important? What he's doing in heaven now. Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8 says the same thing. He, he is always interceding for those who are going to be gods, which is pretty cool, right? Uh, so his intercession. So we have a forever constant intercessor in heaven. And we're supposed to join him in that intercession. In Revelation 5.8, we read of golden bulls full of incense arising before God. And then it says what they are. What are they? What are those golden bowls full of incense uh, in heaven? The prayers of the saints. And later, when he's going to grab the bowls and, and judgment's going to come, it basically is all the times Christians have said, that's not right, that's unjust, God ought to do something. God, won't you do something to bring righteousness on earth instead of that? It's not overlooked. God hears the heart cry, whether it was the Old Testament saying or us now, pleading for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Of course, as believers, we're praying that more Pauls will be saved that also were persecutors before they were Pauls and stuff. We'd, we'd rather have somebody turn to Christ. But if they don't, we want them to be able to stop inflicting harm on God's people, right? God puts it all in, and one day He'll rain down in judgment because of those prayers. He'll be answering those prayers for justice. So it's pretty interesting. So when you intercede for others, those prayers rise like sweet incense to the nostrils of the Lord. Hopefully Aaron and later high priests, we know some were t awful at it, but hopefully some had a godly intercession for the people. And lighting that incense was part of a reminder to Aaron, oh, I'm not supposed to just light this, I'm supposed to pray for the people, and I'm going to intercede for them as they're, um, you know, in that once a year on the Day of Atonement. So, Well, verses 11 through 16, the tabernacle tax. <laughs> um, when politicians make grand claims about help programs, right? They're going to take care of your education for you. They're going to take care of your Medicare for you. All the different things, right? We often wonder, how are they going to... Generate the money. How are they going to pay for that? Yeah, how are they going to generate the money? Um, and uh, Moses may have been wondering this about the tabernacle. This tabernacle thing sounds great, God, and the people have given enough to actually build it, but how are we going to get this thing sustained, you know, over time? And now God tells him, God tells him, take a census of the people so we can turn them into taxpayers. And everyone over 20 years of age was to give half a shekel. Now, how much is half a shekel? Well, verse 13 tells us, David, 20 geras. And yeah, it doesn't help, does it? But, but we can cipher it out based on what we know about measures and units and things. It'll be about $5 in today's standards. So this is not, you know, this is, uh, this is a specific thing they're doing to get this uh, tabernacle up and going. And uh, certainly uh, that is, uh, you know, you spread uh, it out among enough citizens, you can build that new building 
by doing that, right? And we, we do it for uh, things in our day as well. So in addition to voluntary gifts, here is one they all are to participate in. Now, we haven't really gotten to the tithe yet, you know, like we're going to in Israel's economy and the church too. Uh, but they're all to participate in this. And why? Because people will not feel involved in something that doesn't require their investment, right? And so uh, that's often true. And so uh, even though some have more resources than others, everybody being involved at a base level is usually a good thing. Um, it's one of the reasons I like the coming verses about the tithe, you know, because a millionaire's tithe is much more than a McDonald's worker's tithe, but it's exactly the same proportional investment, isn't it, you know? Uh, it's exactly a tenth of, a tithe, the word tithe means tenth, you know, so um, the, the millionaire means a hundred thousand. The uh, thousand dollars a month would mean a hundred or whatever. And in the case of this tabernacle, the one gift by all men over 20 years of age was going to kick the service of it off. It's something they're all going to benefit from, like the building of a new road in our day. Um, but this, of course, is much more important than a road as seen in the language of atonement being used. Um, so you're giving a ransom for your soul. You're talking, God, God's really getting them invested in this. He's using some of the most choice language we associate with sacrifice to them uh, all having 100% to participation in this particular one. This is going to be something that he helps each man and his family's eternal welfare. And that's probably why in this case there is not one charge for the rich and one charge for the poor. Um, what what uh, what there's what could you not conclude by this being about five dollars for every one of them? If you're rich, uh, uh, what are you not going to be able to conclude since you're giving the same amount as uh, poor Byron over there? Let's flip it around. What if it was scaled out? So in this case, this you know the. What's that great saying we make, you guys? Um, all men are equal at the foot of the cross, right? In this case, this couldn't be a this couldn't be a staggered deal here on this one, could it? Because then the rich would say, "Well, I still I gave fifty and you gave five because my soul is worth that much more because I'm a rich guy." So even here, God's putting something into their head, isn't He? And it may have been for a very poor person. The $5 were very hard. It was nothing for the rich man. But there was the equal sense of camaraderie in this on this one. There's going to be different ones. You know, we're going to see the tithe and, and uh, other things. But they've already had a voluntary one to bring the furnishings. But here's one everybody brings the same. And it, it, he's putting something in their head. Any other thoughts come to your mind when you think about that? There's a lot I like about that. Okay, well, in verses 17 through 21, the instructions for the bronze laver. So he's already given out the instructions about the priests and their sacrifices. And now God provides a way for them to wash their hands and their feet. Now, it's interesting. The people, they didn't know the importance of washing up medically, of course, but God did, right? And so, uh, you know, um, it's amazing how after in the, I think it was what, the 1800s? 
where they started giving more emphasis on sterilizing medical rooms and things and washing hands between surgeries and stuff so you didn't come into this victim of the plague here and without having washed up, work on the next one over here who just needed a tooth pulled, but you'd bring in the plague to them, you know, and stuff. So, uh, you know, somewhere along the line, they started, by the way, the man that discovered that they should wash before surgeries was a very committed Christian. And uh, so that's uh, in one of those books about Christians and their uh, things in science and the uh, contributions to science in the medical field. The man was a Christian who said, we need to wash up between surgeries and this will help a lot of this stuff. Um, But anyway, they're going to have their hands in sacrifices and guts and things like that as they offer the sacrifices, all the different things. And so God says, okay, before you go into the tent, wash your hands, right? And this is what this bronze laver is going to be about. They have to wash up before they go in the tent. Cleanliness is next to godliness. So there are two more interesting facts about the bronze laver. What is not given forth that is given for the other items? We teased this a little while ago. Do we need to do the Jeopardy music? Yeah, the dimensions, right, yeah. Um, For every other one, it it was said exactly uh, what specs with height, with length and height to build it, but not this. So that's interesting. So there's some freedom for, uh, but I guarantee you, they love God's Word so much, I guarantee you they said, okay, now... uh, Let's try to get it, let's see what all the other things are, and let's put it proportionally with the others, you know, even though the exact, you know. So it's almost like God's just giving them that little bit of, okay, you know, let's see how they solve this problem out. Because one of the things you see as the Old Testament goes along is, God's not only giving them the law, but He's also teaching them to think, and so some very good lawyers are going to come out of the people of Israel, right? Because they're going to cipher. They're going to say, well, he doesn't say, but he did say this, and he said that. This is in the middle. Let's see what we can do. You know, so it, uh, he, he's, he's raising a thinking people. Our faith is a thoughtful faith. Every once in a while somebody talks about taking a leap of faith, and usually they mean, I trust even though I don't see any evidence to back it up. No, uh, our scripture uh, gives us many reasons to take an intelligent, you know, trust uh, in our faith, you know, which is really good. The other thing, according to Exodus 38.8, what was the bronze laver made of? What's that? Bronze what? Mirrors, yeah. Mirrors uh, brought by the women. So uh, presumably in Egypt they had some of these and they brought them. And they, um, we, we find this out in Exodus 38.8. And so presumably even with the water in it, uh, it's, you could still see some reflection. So imagine you're going to wash your hands. And I don't know about you guys, but when I look in a mirror and I look at my own eyes, uh, I think about life some, right? I think about uh, whether I'm on target some, you know. Uh, I don't just stare and say, look at that good-looking devil. You know, I say, look at that devil. <laughs> that devil that needs to uh, trust Jesus, you know. Um, and so that's interesting to me that that's in there. Um, uh, so the essential oil, verses 22 to 33, they're to take quality spices. A shekel is 0.4 ounces, so there are 16 ounces in a pound. So five shekels equals two pounds, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So how much is 500 shekels of liquid myrrh? It's 200 pounds of myrrh. 
So these are some big batches they're making, right? Uh, when they made the oil, they made a lot of the oil for the days that they went down. So they'd have 100 pounds of cinnamon, 100 pounds of cane, 200 pounds of cassia. The mix in a hen of olive oil, that's probably about six pints. I like verse 25. It says, you shall make from these a holy anointing oil. And then you might want to underline the phrase or start next to it, compounded according to the art of the perfumer. You're going to love how the next chapter starts where God says, I've not just given you instructions to build the tabernacle. I put my spirit in some guys to superintend the process. This is a verse kind of like that. He says, compounded according to the art of the perfumer. I love how God tells Moses to let the perfumer do his sweet work or her sweet work, right? Um, uh, you know, this is something that uh, there's all these things to mix in, but Moses isn't trying to be the one doing it. He says, you're going to have people that have been doing stuff like this since they were slaves in Egypt. Let them take what they've learned with their bachelors and masters from Cairo University uh, there and let them be the ones to lead out in getting that oil together. Um, and this is the oil that's going to be used to anoint everything, the tabernacle, the ark, the priest, everything God calls holy. Look at the warning in verse 32. Don't use this for unholy purposes and don't make a copycat version. They were to treat holy things in holy ways. And how serious is God on this, that they're not to take this thing set apart for this special task and not use it for their friends in the community uh, or in um, uh, the um, uh, make a copycat version of it? Uh, what was the violation if they uh, didn't do this? They'd be cut off, right? They'd risk communication, excommunication from the people of God. If, uh, if they, um, you know, uh, tried to use this for anything but its holy purpose, uh, which is uh, very, very neat. Well, the incense uh, goes along the same lines. Uh, the ingredients here were done in equal amounts. You got sweet spices. I know I don't say these words right, but stacti, ancha, galbanon, pure frankincense. Um, can any of you tell me anything more about any of those? We've got at least one essential oil expert in here. Um, what is a stock tea? It's basically another name for, it's a myrrh type thing. So you can look all these up and get lots of information about it on the internet. Um, Ancha, they're not sure about, but um, they think it's the door membrane of a snail-like mollusk found in the Red Sea. Get some of that in there. Yeah, that'll, that'll, that'll perfume it up. That'll be an incense for you, right? Um, <laughs> Galbanum is like frankincense. It's a gum resin with a pungent balsamic odor. So uh, again in verse 35 it speaks of the art of the perfumer. Somebody's good at this sort of thing, taking snail wipe you know, and adding it together with frankincense and myrrh and, and uh, uh, galbanum and getting something that uh, uh, then again the only one that really had to smell it in that deep was the high priest, right? Or the priest. So... <laughs> um, and again, in verse 37, he makes clear that none of this is to be used for themselves. It's only for holy purposes. So again, the serious warning that anyone who violates this will be excommunicated from the people. Uh, you want to keep holy things holy. Let's just look before we close at 1 Corinthians 3. Because we are on the other side. That was Old Covenant. This is New Covenant that we live under. Um, but specifically, the Bible says that each of us becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit when we're born again. 
God would meet with the high priest once a year on behalf of the people there behind the veil. When Christ died for our sins, the veil was torn in two. We go directly to God. He has come directly to us. We can go directly to Him. And the Bible says when you place your faith and trust in Christ, uh, you're born again and you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we're walking temples. And 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 says, Do you not know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So, uh, we have slightly different commands, all based on the moral law. We've got the breakdown of what we're supposed to obey as Christians in the pages of the New Testament. When we do, we're cherishing and nurturing the temple. When we defy God in uh, sexuality or truth issues or um, whatever it is, breaking down from the uh, moral law that's also given to us in the way that's stated in the New Testament, each time we're defiling the temple. And that's where 1 John 1, 9 comes in. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, just as they would cleanse the tabernacle and later the temple. Uh, for its uses, we are to cleanse ourselves in this temple that God's given us through our faith and confession. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.